0: Podcast. Today with us are all of our co-hosts, Georgia Vesma, uh, Julie, Anna, and Althea Cupo. Today we're going to be talking about well-being in the graduate school.
1: Thank you very much for that extremely dramatic introduction, uh, Althea, and welcome listeners to what's going to be a well-being special where we sort of reflect back on the last year or couple of years of our PhD study and... Uh, yeah talk about particular issues that we face things that have made it more challenging in terms of our well-being Uh, because as we know well-being is a real buzzword at the moment and research and well-being is super important Uh, but it is also something that we've always taken very seriously on the podcast and we always talk to our guests about how they stay sort of uh, safe sane and healthy over the course of one of the most intense experiences you'll have in your life so we thought it would be a great opportunity for to get all four of the hosts together and talk about well-being as a sort of more general topic we've all bought a particular topic to talk about as well
2: the one thing that i wanted to talk about today was two words which we hear quite a lot in academic community and which mean very different things to different people and that is imposter syndrome. I think it's very different what it means to different people based on their personal experiences with it. For me, especially in the very beginning, I did feel very intimidated because essentially working towards a PhD is something that I knew I wanted to do since I was like 13 that was the dream, that was the
0: plan. Okay, you're the only child that I have ever heard of that was like, I want to do a PhD, like everyone else I've met is like, yeah, I had a substandard or unusual high school experience and my performance was mediocre and then through a winding path, I found myself here. I was 11 actually, Oh, my, really?
3: my uncle had a PhD and mm-hmm. I had no idea what they were and I went, I want one of those,
2: it may sound fun.
0: Then <laughs> you needed to collect another one. Yeah. <laughs> well,
2: um, I think that was kind of, uh, nobody in my family had a PhD, but I felt that I really wanted to teach and I really wanted to research and i had this book on ancient egypt which was talking about kind of people who went there and researched there and i knew that that was something that i really wanted to do another factor was the fact that my family are absolutely lovely and have absolute faith in me which when you're constantly told how smart and amazing you are you kind of have to live up to that which does kind of often do the opposite, has the opposite effect of you then kind of come home and you start to doubt. Especially for me a big thing was funding because I am self-funded. My family are again being amazing and helping me through my PhD but that does mean that Kind of the first couple of conversations within grad school was like, "Oh, who are you funded funded by? Who are you funded by? Who are you funded by?" And I just went home and I was like, "I'm absolutely shit."
3: There um, does that does seem to be a almost like a, a an informal hierarchy that you that if you are self funded, you're not as good as the people who have received. Oh, this. Prestigious funding award, and I imagine that must be quite stressful sometimes when you you encounter those conversations. I mean,
2: it's definitely quite. It's it makes your experience quite different also because very often your funding um, informs the networks that you start with because a lot of funding institutions will organize kind of meetings and they will provide some kind of additional requirements or additional support, additional schemes which are available to you and that does mean that you kind of do feel a little bit in the beginning as an outsider to this community which can be quite intimidating but i say also know from talking to a lot of self-funded people who are absolute stars i mean not myself um, I do talk to myself, but I'm not an absolute star. There are very, very smart people out there who for some reason or another could not get the funding and they are either having a loan or they are having support from their families. Um, I know a person who is being funded by a charity that is kind of sort of unrelated to the research, but more so kind of helping her through her PhD because of her experiences. There are many, many ways of how people put themselves through this process, but it is something that can be quite difficult to come to terms with, I found. And I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of other factors that kind of work towards imposter syndrome. Um, I'm very young. I'm one of the younger people in the department. And very often, you know, feels like a lot of people around me have a lot more relevant experience. They've maybe worked in the industry. They have, you know, they know how real life works. And I've not left uni since I was 17. <laughs> and to be world outside of university is a huge unexplored terrain, which I n- hope to never have to encounter. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but that's kind of been my experience with it, really yeah I think imposter syndrome is something that while not everyone experiences it all the time, most people have some experience of it, especially in the course of an academic career. It was interesting for me, so I'm one of those people who did have a, a sort of a work career in between uh sort of my first university time and and now, and I got to the point sort of five years into my career as a fundraiser where my imposter syndrome was more or less gone. And I knew what I was good at and what I wasn't good at. I knew who to ask for help when I didn't know. And so I was able to kind of get let go of those feelings of like, oh, any day now someone's gonna find out that I'm not supposed to be here and just focus on being good at my job. And I had forgotten what imposter syndrome was like until I came back to academia and suddenly there's people around me like, oh, how many books did you read this week? And I'll be like, Oh I haven't I haven't really read a lot of books. I I'm more like you know I'll I'll read a summary or I'll read a review of the book and that's how I decide if I should read it. And you know I'm more like I just wasn't I started to feel like I was a joke academic and that I wasn't supposed to be here because I didn't read two books a week.
0: Well actually when you were te- you were talking to me about that and I was reading everything through and you're telling me that you only read the summaries, I'm like, wow, I have no idea how to research. I'm wasting all my time, and some people know how to read books, but I don't know how to read books because... And at the same time, you're thinking, oh, wow, I'm an idiot because I don't read books right. Yeah.
1: Okay, yeah. That, like, uh,
0: this is weird.
1: I was, <laughs> feeling, I, I was feeling really anxious, and like my credibility was kind of... Um, very easily undermined because if anyone asked me any prying
0: questions about the books then I wouldn't be able to say very much. I just thought you, you'd you been in it so long that like you you knew what to do. Because like, I, I didn't do a master's dissertation so I'm like clearly this is the right way to do things and I have so much to learn. <laughs> I think the
1: most important thing is that there is no right way to do it. I think my way is what works for me. I have to be selective. Um, and so knowing what I needed to read through was important to me, but I know that you got really good compliments on like the depth and breadth of your reading on your uh,
0: in your review. Well, actually, they told me th- the first comments I got was, "You read the wrong things, go and read other things." That was after <laughs> the first two weeks, and I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna do whatever he tells me to do because as long as I'm doing what he tells me to do, he won't fire me basically. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, this is, I mean, the fear of being fired from something where, you know, you're two weeks in and everyone knows it's a process of development, that is, that's an expression of imposter syndrome, isn't it? It's this expression of like, someone somewhere is going to find me out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but there is, as soon as you realize that no one is out there looking, like, it's scrutinizing you that much, that the people who are scrutinizing you, It's your job to go and meet them and say this hasn't gone well if something hasn't gone well. It it can set you free from the imposter syndrome a little bit.
3: I think it also helps to, um, if you're feeling really bad with it, is to kind of check in with your thoughts a little bit and go, how real is this? Mm. Um, my particular one is the amount of hours I see other people work. Mm. And of course I assume they're working. If <laughs> I go around to their desk and discover they've spent the last hour on Facebook, that's that's something else. Oh, uh, time. <laughs> <laughs> but then the other, for me speci- specifically, because I'm a classicist, it was the language. Because I came in and, and had to hit the ground running with Latin and Greek and there was an awful lot of competition at the beginning of my masters for people trying to prove that they could do two ancient languages and three modern languages and this without having done languages before and that can get really intense and it's really stressful to have to do a language at the same time as research and you have to be a bit gentle with yourself and think you know is this real and because when you actually get talking to people, you find everyone is kind of going, oh actually, aorists are, are terrible. I can't I can't understand half of this. Um, a friend of mine that I've always thought, you know, she works all the hours. And I spoke to her and she'd had a really bad experience in her panel, and it was an offhand remark that somebody'd said, and it had made her feel really bad about her PhD. Mm-hmm. And what she'd done was that she went off with a friend and they now have regular meetings where they basically just scream about how awful things are, have a coffee and a scream. And that seems to work for her, but it is making sure that you sort of slightly step back. And if some, somebody says something to you, sometimes you have to remember it's, it's all about them and it's not about you and it's not necessarily true and if your supervisor comes back and says well actually you're doing fine then that's the thing if you need to you print that email off and you frame it which i think i'm going to be doing this (laughs) week
2: yeah i mean it's it can get quite scary this way um and i think that is based on the fact that there is no specific criteria because when you just do your bachelor's or your master's, you're a part of a cohort and your experience tends to be kind of a part of the typical experience. You can check in with other people where they are. Um, And now there are people coming over and asking me how much I've written. And I'm like, well, I've written a fair bit, but that's because that's how I work. To me, it's very important to write my thoughts down and to be able to edit them and think them through. And then I sometimes completely change what I've written, but for me that's very important. But that doesn't mean you're supposed to have these many words. Some people, you know, completely form their argument and then spend a month just read, uh, writing it up. And if that's what that works for you, that works for you. My supervision was very different from everyone else's. Now, it actually helped me a lot through my first term but it also meant that I was kind of questioning myself and I was like, well, is it because I'm worse than others? Or is it because my supervisors don't think I'm able to make it? And it's, it can be quite difficult to step back and to stop comparing yourself to other people. And if there is one thing that I think a lot of people are struggling with, and particularly me, is comparing yourself to other people. And we all need to stop doing that. And it's incredibly tough, and it's very difficult to do, especially when your peers went off, got jobs, or, (laughs) you know, have houses, families, children, and, you're still at university
0: but you mean like you can actually buy a whole house to yourself
2: yes apparently some people do i heard so um and it's yeah it's it can get quite scary
1: yeah i think there's a way of using that instinct to compare yourself to others that can kind of be more you can use those feelings and that that wanting to compare yourself to others, and I just try and come back to those feelings and instead think, oh, you know, my cousin owns a house now, and instead of then following it up with, why don't I, just be like, that's great for her, and that is something that I will one day achieve. Or, you know, Anna's speaking at loads of conferences at the moment, getting lots of conference invitations, that's something that I want. I don't have to feel bad that I'm not doing it right now but maybe it would be great to sit down with her for coffee and talk about you know how did she how did she apply for them how did they go what was good about it what was difficult and trying to identify because there's a there is a I want to say a jealousy aspect to it when I find myself comparing to others and just trying to sort of take out the jealousy and instead think of it as like a goal setting experience life is a marathon not a sprint yes and I definitely have the tendency to want to just run full tilt at everything but it doesn't it doesn't always get you where you want to go well thank you very much for uh sharing your experiences of imposter syndrome i think it's a really important well-being issue uh and something that a lot of phd's will experience over the course of their research the thing that i was uh, going to talk about as the kind of well-being issue that I faced this term actually kind of ties in in a way, because it is about taking on too much and sort of um, spreading my time and my resources in a way that sort of became unsustainable and unhealthy for me. I came into PhD from a year where I had done my masters full time and I had been working twenty-one hours a week at the university as well. So when I started the PhD, I sort of had it in my head, like, oh, well, I will keep quite a few hours of work, and I'll make sure that I'm signing up for all kinds of volunteering opportunities, so I sort of um, take on a lot of the production responsibilities for the podcast, I'm an editor for a student journal, I have two part-time jobs, I do the PhD, I do a regular game of Dungeons and Dragons, which is quite a time-consuming hobby, if anyone (laughs) does that, and... I also am training to run a 10k, so I go running four or five times a week. So I reached a point quite recently where I realised that I'm doing about 20 things and my PhD, which I'm, you know, funded to do and I'm here to do and it should be my number one priority, had slipped way down my priority list. Oh, I'm also learning a language, which takes about four hours a week.
2: And you're planning a wedding.
1: Oh yeah, and I'm getting married. <laughs> um, and trying to maintain a healthy relationship. And don't forget the pub quizzes. Oh yeah, well it's see, I've, the pub quizzes I have dropped. I haven't been to a pub quiz in about four months, which has been a nightmare for my mental well-being. That's sad. That should have been at the top of your list. Yeah, yeah, that's much more important than my paid work or the. PhD. You destroyed our team. Yeah, when I left, everything went to pieces. So yeah, I did reach a point where I just wasn't, you know, I, Jolie was talking about the, uh, the hours and sort of looking at other people's hours, and I felt like I was maybe giving the PhD 12 hours a week or something like that, which is less than half of what I felt I should have been giving it. So I've had to sort of take a bit of a step back and try and adjust my expectations because it turns out that when you try and do that many things you don't do any of them that well like I wasn't doing the best job my PhD but I also wasn't giving the best to my employers my poor uh, fiance was not getting the best of my my uh me either this uh, tended to just see me when I was extremely exhausted and grumpy so yeah I've um I wouldn't say that I've officially solved this one but this is the thing that's On my agenda for me to solve soon is work out what I can walk away from and stop spreading myself so thinly and start giving quality time to the important things on that list. If anyone's got any advice on priorities, that would really help. Uh, Well, go ahead, Anna. Well,
2: the one thing that so um, in the beginning of my masters, we had like a workshop on balancing life and planning work and uh, also giving presentations. Now, it was mostly like a six hour long pep talk. Um, that but, is extreme. Uh, yeah, I mean, we were, we were really bored and really hating the guy by the end of it because he was like, so this year I wrote a book and learned to dance and learned a language and you just like, yeah, you, it was just like a a talk on how awesome he is six Um, hours long but one of the more useful things that he has said is that both your writing time and your social things should be in your planner should be in your diary it's a booked in time and I'm I'm quite bad at keeping my diary like with me and updated. I have one. I put things in it. I do check it regularly. But also I would leave it, you know, at the desk in PhD cluster, or I'll leave it at home when I go there. Or I'll forget it elsewhere. Now when I make an appointment to see someone for coffee, that is as well as lessons I attend. The whatever conference planning that I do and something else is in my diary, mm. um, and that has improved my well-being substantially. Just yeah. having it in there and saying I'm doing that, uh, I'm playing D and D on Saturday, and that's happening. And like I might have other jobs that also need doing, but I'm having that time to kind of unwind.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think, um, so I use uh, the calendar on my phone and I colour code everything so that uh, social stuff is green, podcast stuff is orange, studying stuff is purple, uh, so that it's very, uh, so you can see I end up with big blocks of, uh, of colour, um, and then I, it also means that I can kind of look at my week at a glance and be like, that looks a bit light on purple, or alternatively that looks a bit light on green and I haven't built in enough social time with people. I absolutely love taking coffee breaks. <laughs> at the sli- For someone who doesn't drink coffee, the amount of coffee drink- breaks I take is uh, probably disproportionate. But it's one of the things that actually gets me through the day with people is knowing like, right, I need to just put whatever I'm doing down right now and just go for a coffee with Anna and, you know, talk about our boyfriends or whatever <laughs> and, uh, and have like a good gossip because My brain reaches saturation quite easily, I think. Like, I can be a very hyper-focused person, but then it's kind of like, I know that I need to build in time to come up for air, uh, because otherwise I just forget to eat all day and stuff.
3: I have um, a a to-do app. It's quite a complicated one, and it did cost me a bit of money, but I found the moment I stopped trying to remember everything that I had to do and I just let my phone do it for me I found I had a lot more brain space Mm -hmm. to do everything else Mm -hmm. so even the most basic things like read fiction not read for fun you know spend five minutes doing X take your medication the more things I put in there the more little bits of space I have in my brain for doing the things I really want to do. And I found that eased the pressure a lot because I found there was so much anxiety around this, so much I have to keep remembering. And when I stopped having to keep remembering, things got a lot easier.
1: Yeah, it's true actually, that when you don't organise your time, even though it feels like you're sort of saving time, you end up using so much more of your time and resource, just remembering what you need to do or rushing because you forgot to go to that thing. So I hadn't really consistently used a calendar until this year, but it's I really like it. And one of the things that I'll do if I've got kind of a half-hour gap in my schedule is sit down with my calendar app and check that everything I think should be in there is in there and that I'm sort of on top of everything. And, yeah, that includes, you know, building in time to rest and making sure that I'm kind of... Uh, my time is used in a balanced way. But, yeah, sometimes I will just open it up and look at the the week and just think, oh, you haven't really allowed yourself a lunch break any of these days, so you might need to move things around a little bit. Also, checklists are great
2: because Mm. checklists allows you for a regular celebration of the things that you have accomplished today.
1: Yeah, I use, for for my to-dos, I use paper because then I can cross it out, uh, sort of, and it's a nice physical action. I also this is a recommendation for any sort of techie people who are thinking about uh, time and task management. So I use a free app called Trello, T R E L L O, and I find that that is amazing for to-do lists, um, for kind of scheduling and planning stuff. So I use I have one for wedding planning. I have one for sort of setting the agenda for you know things I need to achieve this month. Um, and I yeah I use it a lot. I that was something that I picked up during my sort of career time, but that it lets you create these editable to-do lists and group chunks of to-do lists together and stuff. It's very satisfying.
0: This concludes part one of our two-part well-being special. (laughs) Tune in next time for more well-being. Perfect. It's
1: perfection. Not Safe for Publication is a new podcast about the lighter side of humanities research at the University of Manchester.
2: If you're a humanities researcher who has something funny to share, please be in touch with us at nsfppodcast
0: at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at NSFPPodcast. Have an adequately happy existence.